there, everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where every week some friends get together to talk about movies, among other things. Uh, today, though, uh, it is actually going to be just Butter With Dave. Ew. That means that I am flying solo. Um, it's been a really busy month for us. Uh, we have a lot of professional and personal obligations that we have to see to. So uh, in lieu of our having our usual meetup with the five of us, uh, it's just going to be me today talking about uh, our theme. Now, the theme that we have chosen recently has been back to school to celebrate the uh, coming school year. Uh, I am going to be kicking it all the way back today uh, with my choices for the month uh, to movies that are based in television shows that I would have seen while I was in school, all the way back, in fact, to elementary school and middle school. Uh, we're talking about two Nickelodeon properties that have been revived through Netflix. Uh, that would be Rocco's Modern Life and Invader Zim. Rocco's Modern Life through a Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling, a new Netflix special uh, brought on by Nickelodeon. And also uh, in that same vein, uh, Invader Zim, Enter the Florpus. So we'll be getting into those in the episode today. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in, uh, since there's nobody here to stop me. Uh, we're just going to cover first Rocco's Modern Life, the Static Cling movie that has just been released recently. Uh, it was really exciting, a really cool thing to see come back. Uh, really uh, warm and fuzzy part of my childhood. And uh, before I go ahead and spoil the entire plot of this movie... I would recommend uh, that you take the uh, hour and change to check it out. It's pretty brief. Uh, again, it's available on Netflix, uh, streaming right now. And definitely worth a look if you're a fan of the franchise, fan of Nicktoons, uh, or if you're just new to it and have an interest in seeing what it's all about. Speaking of what it's all about, I have here a brief series overview of Rocco's Modern Life, the uh, Nickelodeon television show that aired in the 1990s. Uh, that is the story of Rocco, uh, an Australian wallaby who moves to O-Town. Uh, it's a kind of stand-in for Anywhere USA, uh, a town kind of uh, similar to uh, The Simpsons' Springfield, uh, where he and his friends Heifer, a steer, and Filbert, a turtle, along with a running cast of side characters, experience satirical misadventures of adult life that offer tongue-in-cheek comedy surrounding the cultural and social landscape of the 1990s. Now, uh, the thing that's really interesting about Rocco's Modern Life Statically is that it was very, very aware of its place in time uh, as a series uh, when it originally came out. So uh, much in the vein and spirit of the original series, the movie is very, very steeped in our current timeline. Brief explanation of the plot and how those uh, very two disparate time periods kind of clash would be as follows. And again, if you haven't seen it, go ahead and pause here. Um, picking up right where the series leaves off, we find Rocco, Heifer, and Filbert adrift in space watching an old orange VHS tape of their favorite animated show, The Fatheads. Now, if you are uh, an OG or a hardcore Nickelodeon fan, then you probably remember those orange VHS tapes, uh, those cassettes that were released in the 90s for uh, just collections of episodes, or I believe the Rugrats movies were also printed on the orange VHS. So uh, right away, that is one of the first references that is established and is uh, <clears throat> a really kind of heartwarming callback. Uh, they then, though, uh, return to Earth and find O-Town, their hometown, a very different place. Uh, smartphone technology, commercial drones, and most disturbing to Rocco, a startling absence of the Fatheads TV show. 
Uh, desperate to revive the series, Rocco appeals to the now failing conglomo. Uh, they famously have the uh, corporate slogan, We Own You. Uh, and also appeals to his neighbor and sometimes foe, Mr. Big Head, a uh, conglomo employee, to bring the series back to television. Rocco and the gang then seek out Ralph Bighead, Mr. Bighead's son and the series creator. When they locate Ralph, it is revealed that Ralph now goes by Rachel and has undergone a transgender transition. They reunite with Mr. and Mrs. Bighead, Mr. Bighead rejecting his daughter's identity and swearing off the project, leading Rachel to leave O-Town and do some more soul-searching. Rocco uh, suggests that Mr. Bighead ought to embrace how things change over time, otherwise he may find himself missing out on what matters to him most, his family. They then hop over to the Fathead's premiere as Rachel has embraced and completed the project after all. Rocco, however, is crushed by the presented show uh, when an additional baby Fathead character is introduced, uh, saying that it's not the original and sacred cartoon that he so fell in love with. The other characters quickly remind him of the inevitability of change and the benefits it can offer, and in the end, Rocco also accepts that some things, no matter how dearly remembered and celebrated, can find new purpose and substance when having the courage to grow. Um... Now, this was uh, a Nickelodeon special revived through Netflix and was pretty relatively well received. It was really highly anticipated. A lot of people were just kind of chomping at the bit with the announcement that Rocco would be returning to television, even if it's just a one-off special. Uh, and it received a 90% critic score uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, 72% audience score. So some some faithful fans uh, seem to have a few problems with it, some of which we'll cover. Um, it also received a 7.2 on IMDb. Uh, Kevin Johnson of the AV Club gave the special an A minus, saying that it is a quote smarter and more powerful, more resonant piece of satire than the show's original overall reputation, and uh, that seems to go pretty hand in hand with most of the reviews. Everybody seemed to be uh, pretty bowled over by the special, uh, pretty interested in the themes that it explored and the revamped of these uh, these characters, and there is uh, quite a bit to delve into there. Um, First and foremost, uh, there is the updated O-Town. Uh, again, these are characters that were set in the 1990s, and the series ended with them being launched away from O-Town and into space in the 1990s. So they've been away for 20 years. So the town that they grew up in, uh, the town that they've come to know and love, O-Town, um, has really undergone a lot of changes. Uh, there are commercial and non-commercial drones flying throughout the sky. Uh, there's actually one shot as it pans toward the atmosphere of uh, a drone labeled NSA. It's pretty, uh, pretty obvious tongue-in-cheek reference there. Um, also, there's uh, you know, a lot of smartphone technology and social media developments. Uh, there are energy drinks. There's uh, O-Town's apparent embracing of hipster culture. Um, so a... Uh, a really interesting look at how these characters, again, steeped in the 1990s, are adapting to this changed landscape. Um, Philbert and Heifer are quick to embrace the new environment they find themselves in. Uh, Philbert immediately becomes uh, attracted to uh, smartphone technology and social media. Heifer, on the other hand, is really interested in uh, emerging tech, uh, virtual reality, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so they're having a blast, but Rocco is, uh, is pretty reluctant and finds himself, uh, as I mentioned in that short synopsis, uh, struggling with the absence of uh, his kind of anchoring element, the thing that he remembers so dearly from the 1990s, the Fatheads cartoon. As I also mentioned, uh, there is the uh, pretty well-talked about and well-covered and generally pretty well-received reveal um, that uh, Ralph, the character that we came to know uh, in the 1990s series as the creator of the Big Heads and Mr. and Mrs. Big Head's son, uh, has undergone a transgender transition, now going by Rachel. There's a lot to unpack there. For example, 
uh, this was sewn into the idea of the special right from the beginning. Uh, apparently, Joe Murray and his team were, were really interested in exploring and integrating that plot uh, and that kind of story, presenting that kind of representation. Um, and Nickelodeon was, uh, I guess, from what I've heard, from what I've read, from uh, some of the interviews that I have absorbed, uh, was really a little bit reticent at first uh, to go ahead and roll out this storyline. Uh, but eventually... Uh, Murray and his team convinced uh, Nickelodeon to get on board with it, and Nickelodeon's suggestion to their credit. Uh, they encouraged the team to work with GLAAD, that is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, to make sure that the representation was respectful to transgender individuals while fitting into the comedy of the show. Uh, it does this very well. Um, I would say that uh, I was, I was kind of taken aback. Uh, it was a surprise. Um, I hadn't read about that going into it, so the first time I watched it, it was uh, quite the reveal to me as well. Um, it became kind of apparent early on before uh, Ralph, uh, excuse me, Ralph now Rachel uh, reveals this information. Um, the character appears with eyelashes, uh, which we haven't seen before, um, and then there's a, a really nice moment where, um, as they're seeking out uh, the character they know as Ralph, uh, Rachel explains that she has changed, uh, that she now goes by Rachel, and then the full character is revealed, um, different hair, uh, she's wearing a dress, she has heels, uh, she has the uh, kind of drawn-in eyelashes, uh, an, another kind of gendered indication via the animation, um, and there's this very brief pause, uh, this little beat, right after uh, she reveals this information to them, and, you know, it was... It, Offered an opportunity for a pretty toe-curling moment. It really kind of could have been very uncomfortable. It could have been the relatively obvious gag of um, them pausing for a moment and, I don't know, insensitively or ignorantly kind of cracking up at the situation uh, or having a laugh at Rachel's expense before some sort of, like, finger-wagging lecture um, or or them stumbling around it and, like, trying to unpack and understand it. Um, instead, what happens, though, in a really, really satisfying way is that instead when this information is revealed to them, there is that brief pause, just lets it hang in the air. And then Rocco, Phil Burton and Heifer, the team pretty much all just say, well, that's great. Uh, why don't you join us? We're, we're trying to save the fat heads um, and accept her identity, embrace her, her new identity pretty much right off the bat um, without any questions asked. And uh, that I thought was, was a really tasteful and really respectful representation. Um, there are some online critics who have disagreed a little bit. Uh, some folks who have pointed out that, um, of course, in the real, uh, a lot of people's experience uh, is not quite that smooth um, and is not received quite as well. Um, that there is oftentimes a lot of struggle in emerging with uh, with a new newfound identity, even despite kind of changing social attitudes uh, toward that situation. But I don't know. The criticisms that I found surrounding that were uh, more or less that it feels a little obvious what's going to happen, that one of um, Rachel's parents, uh, one of the two big heads, is going to reject his her excuse me her identity um, and uh, and throw a fit about it, which Mr. Big Head does. Um, but then it's, you know, pretty predictably just sort of um, sort of rounded out as a, as a story arc. Um, part of the final special that she reveals, uh, the Fatheads special that uh, that she produces, um, ultimately recalls a tender moment shared uh, between her and um, Mr. Bighead and Mrs. Bighead, uh, the family, when she was a child, and that really kind of turns that around, uh, and they embrace, and it's you know it's a nice it's a nice moment of closure. Um, 
to that story arc. A lot of people didn't feel it went far enough, or a lot of people felt it was a little bit too uh, too sugary. But that being said, again, you know, this is a kid's cartoon. Uh, it's trying to introduce new ideas, uh, especially in the sense that uh, this is kind of the first animated television show or animated kid show to include a transgender character and was uh again a surprisingly tasteful uh attempt at that and i thought really successful so um it's got a lot of attention and a lot of people talking about it and i thought it was a, a very smart and very uh uh very forthright move for a nickelodeon uh property to bring into the fore uh, another really interesting thing uh about this special is it's kind of meta commentary uh, on the animation industry as it stands now versus the way it did in the 1990s. Nickelodeon kind of seemingly addresses its reluctance to bring the series to another network, in this case, Netflix. Uh, the meta commentary is pretty abundant uh, as it frames the failing conglomo as a sort of stand in for Netflix, a uh, company hemorrhaging money and desperately investing in revamped and rebooted properties. Uh, Rocco is also insistent that Ralph, now Rachel, uh, take the helm in the rejuvenation of the show as he fears conglomo with its staff of underpaid and overworked computer animators will rob the show of its original zeal. It's a really hilarious sequence in which we see those animators uh, portrayed literally by worms uh, just sort of plowing through the uh, the animation process on their computers and we see a few snippets of the show that they would have created and it's of course a disaster. Um, and also uh, the desire to, uh, to incorporate um, Rachel the creator of the show in rejuvenating that property sort of an obvious reference to nick's desire to incorporate the series creator joe murray to oversee the production which is a great call great specifically in the sense that um i mean obviously there there have been a lot of updates in animation and animation technology since the 90s um the industry has changed quite a bit frame rates have changed the technology has changed as far as animation one thing though that is really interesting is that um Rather than using like tablets or any kind of computers, uh, Rocco's Modern Life Static Cling was storyboarded by hand, uh, which isn't something you see a whole lot of in the animation industry these days. So it was really nice to see them not only revisiting these characters in the series, but re kind of rejuvenating the, the now relatively lost art uh, of 90s serial animation. And... Um, and it really shows, it still has the feel of the show Rocco. Um, you know, there's like next to no right angles uh all the buildings and uh all the spaces they're in are sort of like arched or a little bit askew um they do a great job of returning the main voice cast to uh stand in for the show to uh to bring these characters back to life in the way that we knew and loved them and there are also uh loads of series references uh especially through the side characters that make appearances in the background shots uh or just throughout the story there's really really big man uh, a superhero there's mr dupet uh, who works at Conglamo, Mr. Big Head's boss. There's Peaches, uh, who is basically the devil from the heck, that being their, uh, their alternative there for kids. Um, there's Fruitcake Man, there's the Wild Pig, there's uh, Crod the Caveman. And if you're a devotee of the series, then you probably recognize some of these names and would probably recognize them on the screen. Uh, they did a really great job of returning all of that to the fore. I have to say that uh, I really didn't know what to think going into it. I thought that I'd heard initially that their plan for it, uh, as they followed through on, was to set these characters in a uh, contemporary landscape, and I was a little skeptical of that, wondering how the humor would hold up and how these characters would occupy uh, our current timeline, uh, since they were, again, so steeped in the 1990s. So it was really great to see them pull that off successfully, and really, really wonderful to see this cartoon revived 
in a way that uh, not only maintains its original heart and its original uh, integrity, but also advances uh, in terms of addressing a lot of current social issues and uh, and and a lot of uh, educational opportunities for kids. So I think it was a uh, it was really well handled. I have to say, uh, thumbs up to Joe Murray and the team, to Nickelodeon for championing this, to Netflix for picking up the property and reviving it. And uh, I I would say that uh, it's. If you're a fan of the series, it's a must-see. Otherwise, I would say, you know, check it out. Maybe check out a few episodes of Rocco first. But uh, definitely worth your time, definitely worth a look. And again, only an hour long. So uh, go ahead and give that a watch. And that, of course, then brings us to the second film that we'll be discussing. That would be Invader Zim Enter the Florpus. Now, to those of you unfamiliar with that series, a little series overview that I have to provide for you here is as follows. Zim is a delusional, egotistical Urken invader tasked with conquering Earth, unaware that his mission is, in essence, to distance him from his beloved tallest, the Urken leadership, who have become fed up with his incompetence and overconfidence. Uh, On Earth, he squares up against Dib, a lone sci-fi paranormal enthusiast, while trying to maintain the veneer of a human child and quietly, and sometimes not so quietly, plotting to destroy the human race and finally earn the admiration of his superiors. Um... This was a show that was uh, running largely from 2001 through 2006 uh, on Nickelodeon and later Nicktoons. The distribution rights were uh, purchased by Netflix in May of 2019. The film was released on Netflix uh, very recently, August 16th, uh, and received generally positive reviews, which I'll return to. Um, But uh, a quick synopsis of the movie and again uh an opportunity for you here to go ahead and turn this off if you haven't checked it out because this will be uh pretty much the whole movie uh that would go as follows Excuse me. The film takes place sometime after the final events of the series, where we find Dib, Zim's enemy, and depending upon one's vantage point, the protagonist of the series, uh, who has fallen deeply out of shape in Zim's apparent absence. Uh, so when Zim and his robotic and hopeless sidekick, Gurr, reappear without warning, he leaps into action. While training to battle Zim, uh, as he touts an yet unplanned phase two to his sinister scheme, Zim discovers that his beloved Tallis, the leaders of the Urken Empire, have forgotten him on Earth as they continue their quest for domination eons away. Thusly, when Dib, now battle-ready, confronts Zim, he finds the invader deflated and in crisis. When Dib suggests displaying him to the world and, uh, more, perhaps more importantly, his distrusting and skeptical scientist father, Zim sort of just rolls over and meekly agrees. Uh, and the plan is to reveal them at the Peace Day celebration, which is just around the corner. However, at the Peace Day celebration, as it commences, uh, Zim pulls the rug out from under Dib and launches Phase 2. Uh, that would be banishing Dib's father, enslaving Dib and his sister Gaz with a buffoonish imposter father named Clembrain. Really funny character there. Um, and altering the popular membracelet, bracelet, a scientific wrist device, such that it transports Earth directly into the path of the Urken War Armada. In doing so, however, a florpus is opened, that is a rift in the fabric of space-time so powerful and destructive that it causes realities to collide before their complete obliteration. With the Urken Armada approaching Earth and Earth approaching the florpus, Dib and Gaz spring into action, escaping their stand-in father and rescuing their true father, who remains unwilling to acknowledge a world of shattered science that he cannot comprehend. After a battle with Zim's army, Clembrain holds the key to returning Earth to his proper place and out of harm's way. Zim demands that he hand over this key. Uh, it's a mini moose, by the way. Don't ask, just watch it. 
uh, to Zim, uh, but Clembrain, having grown fond of his imposter children slash prisoners, uh, hands the key over to them, sending Earth safely back uh, to its proper place just as the Urken Armada is pulled into the Florpus. Back on Earth, when the dust has settled, Zim taunts Dib with a stolen ceramic figure from his front lawn, as if now to suggest that this was his phase two endgame all along. He then goes to report this quote-unquote success to the tallest, who, along with the Urken Armada, are trapped in a warped and hellish space-time flux. Uh, Zim, as always, brushes off the obvious defeat and remains the delusional, self-satisfied invader that we've come to know and love in the original series. Uh, that, in essence, is Enter the Florpus. Um, quite a bit to unpack there. Um, the reception uh, was very warm. A lot of people really praising uh, this re-entry of the series. Um, Charles uh, Pelliam Moore of io9 wrote that, quote, What Enter the Florpus does better than anything else is convey how much potential there still is in the Invaders in franchise, end quote. And noted that, quote, By turning Zim into a legitimate threat, Enter the Florpus both gives Dib a real reason to fight and makes you question which of them you would want to win in the end, which is a pretty interesting push and pull. Uh, Matthew Doggerty of IGN praised the film's animation and humor and wrote that, quote, Enter the Florpus didn't need to be a grand conclusion to the series, but it's also a movie that wants to have genuine stakes and truly does. Um... If you're a devotee or fan of the original series from the thousands, um, then you probably recall that uh, there would be some episodes where Zim's plans would uh, come pretty close to fruition. But pretty much all of his plans are pretty hapless and, again, fueled by his ego. So most of them tend to fall apart at the end of the episode with or without Dib's intrusion. So that uh, that makes for a pretty interesting uh a pretty interesting vantage point on these characters as the stakes are now higher than they've ever been uh, since Sim is perhaps more successful than he's ever been, at least at the onset, uh, in his scheme and uh, in using his technology and deceiving Earthlings into using technology toward his ends. Um, and I think does a, does a really good job of, uh, of kind of revving up those stakes, as said in the review. Um, the consistency is all there. The uh, aesthetic and animation style of the series is really uh, is really present here. Um, that would be some digital animation accentu- accentuating the machinery and tech. Uh, the character modeling is relatively consistent to the original series. The newly introduced characters fit into this world perfectly, um, especially Clembrain uh, in all of his kind of absurdity. He's more or less just sort of like a hot dog with a haircut. Um, so a really funny character and a really fun character to watch there. Uh, they had uh, all the original voice actors return for it. That would be uh, Richard Horvitz playing Zim. Uh, you may also remember him from Angry Beavers as Daggett. Um, really great voice. Uh, what really drew me to the series to begin with. And uh, he returns uh, pretty pretty perfectly to the series. Hasn't, hasn't missed a beat. Um, we also have uh, Roseric Ricky Simmons playing Gurr. We have Andy Berman playing Dib. Melissa Fon playing Gaz. And uh, doing a couple guest voices for random characters is Justin Roiland, uh, co-creator and... Uh, voice of both Rick and Morty. Um, the show kind of touts a, a real atmosphere uh, that would be a, uh, right up the alley of any fan of Rick and Morty. Um, it's it's very high-stakes sci-fi. Uh, it involves a lot of future tech or uh, hypothetical tech that uh, convincingly fits into the world that is framed in. Uh, and also the dark humor of the original show is revisited here perfectly. Um, and that, again very much in league with Rick and Morty. The writing, uh, again, very in line with the series, uh, revolves largely around uh, 
a lot of absurdity. It's littered with character freakouts. There's a lot of uh, dark and sardonic counterculture tones. There's loads of gallows humor, loads of anti-consumerist material, and all of that kind of at the heart of the original series. So it was really nice to see them bring that back to the fore and to stick to their guns as far as making a show for chiefly for children, um, but that one that's uh, at times pretty abrasive um and uh and pretty intense so it was really really great to see them pull that off after all these years i believe it's 13 years since the series ended uh so to see them come back at full strength is really great uh jonan vasquez creator of the show uh really kind of made a point in interviews uh of saying that that was sort of the idea they didn't really uh, unlike rocco static Kling, didn't really want to draw attention to the fact that zim has been gone from our lives for so long um didn't really want to call attention to how long it has been since the series ended. Didn't really want to build a story based around the absence of these characters for so long. Instead, just diving right back in and giving us more Invader Zim. And I think that uh, that's exactly what you get if you're a fan of the series. It delivers that in spades. One thing that was really, really neat that I really adored about this um, was that they also took the time uh, with their budget to embrace uh, different kinds of animation. They incorporated stuff that we've never seen uh, styles that we've never seen in the show. Um, and uh, this whole thing kicks off actually uh, pretty deceptively. Um, sort of a joke that Joan and Vasquez came up with uh, that when it first uh, first rolls out, we're treated to a very, very meticulously rendered and very sort of realistic anime style, which has never been a part of the series. And it, it's really striking and it really sets a nice false tone for the beginning of the movie, since it really only lasts about two minutes before kicking us back into the traditional Invader Zim series animation. This was something Vasquez wanted to do because he imagined that uh, people would have one of two reactions. They would either say like, oh, fuck, yeah, look at this like wonderful animation. It's really neat to see them bring that to the fore before, of course, faking them out and returning them to the original series art uh, or alternative alternatively uh, true fans of the series um, being turned off by it up until uh, about two minutes later, it returns to its traditional style. Um, so it's kind of a twofold joke in that sense. And I think lands really well. Uh, there's also a moment when the earth is about to be sucked into the Florpus Again, that is a space time rift that causes realities to collide, which is a perfect sewn in explanation for uh a series of different animated styles that uh, all present themselves in very short bursts. We see basically the same several characters, but portrayed in different animated styles. We see um, production art, um, so basically like just pencil, pen, and paper, um, very simplistic storyboard images uh, that are animated to create some of the uh, the movement of that uh, that sequence. We also see claymation. We see uh, outright. Uh, marionette puppetry which is really great and the one that seems to have won just about everybody over is um is uh pugs pug dogs dressed in costumes of the characters which uh <clears throat> which landed pretty pretty well among viewers uh and definitely doesn't stand out uh, as being out of sync with the absurdity of the rest of the show, which I thought was really great. I mean, if you're a fan of animation, then you know that varied animation styles within one project can be tremendously expensive, especially because you generally need to incorporate several different teams working simultaneously on these different uh, brief animated sequences. Um, it was an investment that paid off, uh, was definitely worth doing, and definitely kind of one of the finer points of this special. And... Um, and something that if we see more Invader Zim, I, I certainly hope they return to. Uh, <clears throat> Jonan Vasquez, interestingly enough, uh, again, 
the creator and director of the, of this movie, wrapped up production on this film right around the same time that Enter the Spider-Verse was reaching theaters. Uh, he saw the movie and uh, he adored it, but was the whole time in his head shouting, fuck, imagine what I could have done with that budget. Because that, in essence, is a lot of what we see uh, from what I hear in uh in Enter the Spider-Verse is these colliding realities, these varied animation styles all overlapping. Um, and Jonah Vasquez uh, sort of thought it uh, funny and ironic that after having spent so much time doing that himself and a good portion of his budget for this project on that, that uh, with a much bigger uh, Disney budget, uh, you can reach even greater heights with that sort of aim. So that I thought was a really interesting factoid crossover. Um, <clears throat> I suppose uh, I don't have too much more to say about it. I would say that if you are a fan of the show, um, or if it's if it's your first time diving in, uh, you can't go wrong. Um, it's it's exactly in the spirit and tone of the original series. Um, it explores a much vaster and much richer story. Um, it incorporates with both Zim and Dib, alternatively, this sort of standoffish position with uh, the people that they admire or respect, uh, and trying to prove themselves in a way. Um, and uh, ultimately reaching very different ends. Uh, but it's nice to see that both the antagonist and protagonist, uh, depending upon whom you ask in this uh, this special, are both kind of driven and motivated by the same intention, which uh, I think is sewn in really expertly. I would say, yeah, again, check it out. The animation is fantastic. Writing is hysterical, very dark, very funny, and uh, definitely worth your time, whether you're a fan or not. So uh, I would say... I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. I mean, if uh, if Nickelodeon or uh, Netflix really kind of want to continue to explore these uh, these animated shows from my childhood, the the shows that I really kind of cut my teeth on were Nickelodeon, Nicktoons, and as far as my early interest in animation or e even in comedy and humor. So uh, they really strike a chord uh, now uh, in 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 a way that they I I didn't expect them to. Still. Uh, it still really resonates, and I'm still looking forward to seeing if more properties are rebooted or reintroduced, uh, or if seeing perhaps if we'll get more Rocco or Zim, because uh, I would be down with either of those. And from what Joe Murray tells us uh, in a couple of interviews, it sounds as though they had to kind of narrow down which ideas they wanted to try. So I guess there may be uh, maybe more gold to mine there. Uh, so again, check them out, uh, and thank you for checking this out. Uh, we're going to be back next week, still exploring our back-to-school theme in full force with all of us, and uh, we're really looking forward to that um in the meantime though of course we thank you folks for tuning in and listening um you can always reach us or ask us questions or uh drop us a line through our social media accounts as facebook twitter and instagram we also have a gmail account um so please do please let us know what you think please let us know what you'd like to hear and uh please let us know what you're excited about because we're certainly excited about rounding out this theme and then exploring our next one which is a bit of an anniversary theme that we're very very excited about and some Really great movies we'll be discussing. So, as always, thanks for tuning in, and uh, see you next week. Yeah.